Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Back in the anchor chair, we begin today in our law and justice lead as the federal grand jury investigating efforts by former President Donald J. Trump and his top allies to try to overturn the 2020 election. That grand jury has finished meeting for the day. The big question, will we learn in the next few minutes or hours if the grand jury here in Washington, D.C., has in fact indicted Donald Trump or anyone else involved in that plot to overturn the election. This would mark the third criminal indictment against the twice arrested, twice impeached former president of the United States and current frontrunner by far for the Republican presidential nomination. There is quite a bit here that we just don't know about any potential charges. And it is unclear when or if the federal grand jury here in D.C. has even voted. But Based upon what we have reported over the last three years, potential charges in special counsel Jack Smith's probe may relate to Trump and his allies' efforts to pressure state election officials, their disinformation campaign about the election, creating fake slates of state electors, and potentially inciting the deadly January 6th Capitol insurrection, among other potential charges. Just yesterday, the former president himself posted on his social media website that he expects criminal charges to come any day now. Let's get right to CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Pettis, who is following all of the latest developments. Evan, how do we expect to get word if and when this indictment is handed up to the judge from the grand jury? Well, Jake, we have a team inside the courthouse. Uh, they're watching uh, the, the, the magistrate's proceedings. Uh, typically, the way this works is the grand jury votes on an indictment. The foreperson and the prosecutor uh, hand up the indictment to the judge. Uh, often what they do is you don't know the name of the person, but they have the initials of that person who's being indicted uh, is read in open court. Uh, today could be a lot different. Uh, we've certainly seen, in, in, for example, in the Mar-a-Lago case in Miami, where they did it behind the scenes, away from reporters who are watching every single court proceeding. So that could happen in this case as well. We do know, as you pointed out, uh, the grand jury has left, but the foreperson stayed behind. We have not seen that person leave the courthouse. So uh, that's one indication, possibly, that there is still more action to be taken by the four-person on behalf of the grand jury and prosecutors in Jack Smith's office, Jake. So obviously law enforcement has been preparing for this likelihood that he will be indicted for some time. Right. Have you heard anything from law enforcement about any indications they may have seen about possible threats uh, that could come from whatever the grand jury has decided? Donald Trump himself was issuing vague pronouncements that if he were uh, sentenced to jail, uh, there would be violence. Right, exactly. And look, because of that, uh, law enforcement was or has been looking very closely at all of those online platforms where some of those threats come from, Jake. And so far, you know, everything indicates uh, that they haven't seen anything abnormal, anything to indicate that there is an active threat to the courthouse. Now, uh, when the former president, uh, if and when he's indicted, uh, then he has the option to come to court. And, you know, that would be then uh, present additional possible threats. But at this point, uh, law enforcement says that they everything seems uh, completely normal. They don't see any indication of people coming to Washington at this point, Jake. If he were to be indicted, Donald Trump, would we expect him to appear in person uh, for the arrest arraignment? And if so, when might that happen? How soon after any indictment is handed handed up? 
Well, we anticipate that that could happen uh, as soon as later this week. It's certainly in the next couple of days. And here's the thing. Uh, this court allows uh, for a presentment or for first appearance to be done over Zoom. So he could do it remotely from uh, his club in Bedminster. However, we know that the, the former president, of course, is the kind who wants to show up in person. Of course, as you know, Jake, uh, every one of these things has been used by him uh, to do more fundraising. And so we know that one of the conversations that has happened already between the special counsel's office and the former president's legal team is uh, how they would do this. They've offered him the option of doing a Zoom uh, presentment or first, first appearance. Uh, we anticipate, Jake, that the former president will want to do this in person, again, simply because uh, that's how he's done all the others. Hmm. All right. Very interesting. Evan Pettis, thank you so much. As Mr. Trump huddles with his advisors for yet another potential indictment to be filed, this one uh, by special counsel Jack Smith, CNN's Kristen Holmes is tracking this from uh, Bridgewater, New Jersey, just down the road from Trump's Bedminster Golf Club, where Donald Trump uh, is right now. Uh, Kristen, what are we hearing uh, about how Donald Trump is planning to respond if an indictment does in fact come? Yeah, Jake, well, his team is expecting an indictment. They feel like they are actually prepared for it this time. They have been waiting for this since they got that target letter, and it's something that they have been putting together their response for. We are told that there are paper statements, that there are videos, that they plan to roll out surrogates to put all over conservative media to really make the case for the former president. And as you'll remember, last Thursday, they expected, they believed that there was a potential indictment coming down, and then they were surprised by that Mar-a-Lago superseding indictment. That is not the case today. They do feel like they are prepared now. They do expect this to happen. And we do know that Donald Trump has been having conversations with some of his closest allies on Capitol Hill since he received that target letter, talking to them about exactly how they're going to defend him, to come to his defense when it comes to January 6th. And it's interesting talking to many of his advisors. They really believe that they have a playbook down on how to respond to these indictments. They believe that it starts with these fundraising emails and then it turns into videos in which Trump is directly addressing voters. And they do think that it will lead to a spike in both fundraising and poll numbers. But as we have reported uh, multiple times, even if these advisors believe the short term gain is there for a primary, there are still larger concerns about what these legal implications will mean for a general if Donald Trump is to be the nominee. And as you mentioned, he is still leading in the polls uh, in whether or not he can actually uh, go through a general election with all of these looming over him. So a lot of questions. But again, they do feel in this one particularly prepared. They have statements ready, ready to hit the airwaves to go to Donald Trump's defense. All right. Kristen Holmes in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Thanks so much. Uh, let's discuss. Uh, Caitlin, let me start with you. So Trump could face charges related to any number of a variety of his actions um, having to do with the 2020 election, just to name a few. Uh, there's the pressure campaign that he and his allies uh, launched uh, on state election officials, the fake state electors plots, as well as potential charges uh, for inciting that riot on the Capitol January 6th. I don't know how much you're able to read the tea leaves uh, from the special counsel investigation in terms of the individuals he's interviewed and those who he hasn't. Which charges do you think uh, do, you, do you think are the most likely that he will face? Well, we know that they kind of indicated some of them in the target letter. I think the question that Trump's own orbit has, his attorneys and his political advisors that Kristen was talking about there, is is it limited to those three that were detailed in the target letter he got about two weeks ago? 
Or is it bigger than that? Is it more expansive than that? Because they have looked at a lot of different aspects here, from fundraising to the fake electors to Trump's mindset in and of itself. So there, there is a big potential for a lot to come out of this. Obviously, conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding, that Reconstruction era civil rights thing that they've also looked at that was also referenced in the target letter. That's what they're looking for. But I think the question is also just how much bigger can it be? Because from the target letter in the docs case to the actual charges, it was much bigger than we believe. So, Laura, just to go through those, the, the target letter, uh, it's, it cites three statutes. And to, you say the English version of them. There's the de- deprivation of rights, mm-hmm. which is basically taking away, vote, taking away voting right. rights from people. Conspiracy to commit offense against or defraud the United States. That's pretty obvious. Right. Uh, and tampering with a witness. Um, what do you think in terms of what's likely? Well, that last one, tampering, is actually more expansive than it actually sounds like. On its face, you know, the statute actually calls for that, but it could mean more than actually trying to persuade or corruptly influence a witness. It could also mean any number of other things. Some of the statutes have a more expansive notion. But the big part of all this, remember, is that Congress and the January 6th committee also recommended charges, recommending ones in buckets including conspiracy, including obstruction. The target letter is really a kind of a courtesy. I don't mean like it's a friendly thing to actually receive, but it's a courtesy. It's not required that as a prosecutor you give this to someone, and so you need not give them all the information what they're looking at. You ultimately, if they are indicted, have to give them anything that might be exculpatory. That has to be comprehensive, meaning what tends to show you're actually innocent. But this is essentially a placeholder. You're on notice. Due process requires you be on some kind of notice and an opportunity to be heard. That's all this is. I would expect, though, given the amount of time since the January 6th committee's recommendations that really speaks to the things you're talking about, Caitlin and Jake, that there's been a lot of time that's transpired. There's been more investigations. They had dozens and dozens of people who were on the record, mostly Republicans, they point out in their report, who were on the record testifying. Since that time, what else has Jack Smith and his team uncovered? They've got a criminal jury subpoena power. They don't have the same sort of hurdles that a congressional subpoena would, which is essentially saying, thank you. If you can't send me to jail or it's not going to be enforced, Mm -hmm. you can kind of kick rocks. (laughs) They've got the power of the DOJ. So you have a lot more that I would expect to see to buttress what we've already seen from January 6th. So, um, Jamie Gangel, deprivation of rights, that's about an attempt to take away the voting rights of individuals. Let's talk about the Trump pressure campaign on state election officials in that context, the the effect to nullify people's vote who voted legally and cleanly and fairly for his rival, uh, Joe Biden. Um, Perhaps this is best illustrated in his infamous phone call with the Secretary of State of Georgia, which uh, Biden won very narrowly uh, with uh, Brad Raffensperger, during which Trump asked him, to find enough votes to flip Georgia from Biden to Trump. Take a listen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Do you see this as, as the, uh, one of the strongest bits of evidence against Donald Trump, at least, that we know of? There, there's no question that that phone call is very impressive in the worst sense of the world. I mean, you see him there. You hear him there. And, and when you hear Donald Trump's voice saying that, there's no denying it either. So, so that's true. I also spoke to, to several former, very senior justice sources who said— 
that we should expect this likely indictment, uh, if it comes, to be what one said, the mother of all speaking indictments. They said expect it to be very long, a lot of detail. They said to also look at who else might be named. Are there co-conspirators, unnamed co-conspirators? What, if any, role does Mark Meadows play in this? There's been some talk that he's been cooperating. But the, the main thing that they say about this indictment is that it will be overwhelming evidence plus, yeah. was the quote, because this is the former president. And Caitlin, one of the, one of the arguments uh, Laura was just making was that as strong as the January 6th committee hearing was, there were individuals that they were not able to get testify, such as Vice President Mike Pence, uh, such as some of the White House aides like Dan Scavino and others. Individuals who did testify before the special counsel because the special counsel had more ability to force them to do so. What might we learn? Yeah, they viewed it completely differently. If you talk to people in Trump's orbit, I mean, Pence fought it. He, he still had to go anyway and testify. He fought it on different grounds than what Trump fought it on, but he still had to go and talk to them. I and mean, that in and of itself is remarkable given he is at the center of all of this. He felt the pressure campaign. And when you talk to, to sources in Trump world, they say that's what they're looking for is the congressional committee report obviously is very it kind of laid a roadmap for what we've seen Jack Smith. Absolutely. Do. Yeah. And, and in a really remarkable way, in a way that, you know, it was reported the Justice Department really lagged on a lot of its investigations into things like the fake electors. And then you started seeing the January 6th committee come out. You saw their public hearings. And that's when other subpoenas started going out from the Justice Department. But by the but way, I, Caitlin, remember, they wouldn't always give everything to DOJ, right? You report, I mean, they wouldn't. Yes. They were right. not handing everything over until they, to were have, until they were done. Yeah, which is something that you'll still hear people, DOJ prosecutors, uh, talk about. But uh, in the sense of what they could be looking for, I think they're looking for quotes from Vice President Mike Pence. What is he detailing in there? What are other scenes that are potentially included in the indictment that we did not know about from the January 6th Congressional Committee? And, and, uh, and Jamie, um, the investigation theoretically could go back to before the election because Donald Trump was paving the way. He was setting the table to challenge his pending loss, of which we kind of all saw coming, uh, by going after uh, paper ballots and mail-in ballots, which his campaign was saying, please don't badmouth paper ballots. We need our voters. It was in the throes of COVID the first year. We need them to vote by mail. We need them to vote by mail. Uh, and he decided to uh, set the stage for blaming fraudulent paper ballots, which there's no evidence that there was uh, enough of that to turn the election in any state. But to take a listen. I don't want to see a crooked election. This election will be the most rigged election in history. They know it's, it's going to be fraudulent. It's going to be fraud all over the place. I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. We saw this coming a mile away. This is a critical point, not just the ballots. The fact that, as the January 6th committee said over and over, that's premeditated. He was setting it up because his pollsters had told him, you know, you're not going to win. And so what do you do if you're not going to win? You have to say the election is a fraud. And then there's something else we haven't talked about for a while. But remember, he came out election night early and he wanted them to stop counting, stop counting. Right. the ballots. So this was all, uh, you know, potentially a setup for then what came afterwards. All right, everyone stick around. Coming up, Trump's legal fight is dominating the 2024 presidential campaign trail. 
including how much donor money is going toward paying for Donald Trump's legal fees. That's ahead. In our politics lead, we're in the midst of an historic moment. We're waiting to learn whether a special grand jury here in Washington, D.C. has returned an indictment against Donald Trump. Uh, This would stem from special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into Trump's conduct before, during, and after the 2020 election where he tried to overturn the results of a free and fair election. So what do Republican voters uh, make of this and Trump's growing legal issues? Well, 13% of Republicans now say that they believe Trump committed crimes and yet they still support him. That's according to a new New York Times-Siena College poll. Our panel is here to discuss. David, the share of Republicans who say they believe Donald Trump has committed crimes has gone up slightly from 10% in September 2022 to 13% uh, in July. But, But does that matter? Well, it doesn't seem to matter in terms of where his overall horse race number is, which is in a dominant uh, position in this race. I would just note, Jake, while talking about the Republican nomination race, you're, of course, wisely looking at the numbers among Republicans. That question, if you look at among registered voters overall, a majority of the country uh, says in that poll that he committed serious crimes and that he threatened democracy. And this is Donald Trump's problem. I, I, I realize he's tied with Joe Biden. We're a polarized nation and, and he is in a dead heat race overall. But this is the problem for Donald Trump. What doesn't seem to be a problem for him in the nomination race may prove to be a problem for him in the general election. Right. Because it's not just the majority uh, of voters who think that he uh, tried to undermine democracy. It's also a majority of independent voters who will be uh, important swing voters. S.E., um, one Republican voter told The New York Times, quote, I think he, meaning Donald Trump, has committed crimes. I think he's done terrible things, but he's also done a lot of good. I don't like Trump, but I like the Democrats a lot less, unquote. As Trump's GOP rivals all trail him in uh, the Republican race by at least 37 percentage points in the latest New York Times poll, what should his rivals take away from this, do you think? I mean, the reminder is constant that Donald Trump is a cause. Um, Paul Begala will not enjoy this comparison, but this reminds me a little bit of Hillary versus Bernie in 2016, where I was saying, listen, Hillary Clinton is a corporation. Bernie Sanders is a cause. And that's why so, so much of the passion from voters was with Bernie. Now, she obviously ended up clinching the nomination, but this is very much um, the same kind of thing for Trump and Trump v. DeSantis, for example. DeSantis feels like a fabrication, a corporation. Donald Trump is a cause to a lot of Republican voters. So what he did or didn't do, what he's being accused of, what he in fact may be indicted for is so beyond the point for so many of his voters because they would literally, as you know, Jake, a lot of them die for him. And and Paul, there is a new warning sign for Democrats in this poll, as uh, David alluded to. President Biden is neck and neck with Donald Trump in this possible uh, rematch, 43 percent to 43 percent. What's going on here? Well, there is some good news for Biden. First, he is solidifying his place with Democrats. Right. He's improved his position. And David has has, uh, explained this to us with Democrats. But he is still tied. You're exactly right. A lot of other national polls have Biden up by maybe two to four points. Well, that's margin of error. So let's just call it a tie race. Uh, this means that with Trump, there's almost nothing keeping him from the Republican nomination. And with that nomination, having 43, maybe 45 
percent of the national vote. He got 47 in the last election. And there seems to be nothing there. But the climb for Trump from the 43 where he is today to 50 is far steeper than Biden's climb from that same 43 to 50. Because in that poll, that New York Times poll, people who hate them both disapprove of them both. Biden is winning them. Now, he won them handily the last time. He has to win them handily again this time. It's going to be an unlovely election, that's for sure. And David, Trump's joint fundraising committee uh, has brought in more than $53 million during the first six months of the year. His political action committees have spent even more, um, much of it on legal fees. That's a considerable amount. It it really is. And this is an astonishing development to continue to watch, Jake, because this is a bit of a crunch financially for Donald Trump because he has to take or it doesn't have to, but has chosen to take all that money from grassroots donors and actually apply that to his legal bills rather than on the work of the campaign. This shows how inextricably linked uh, his his legal and political lives are at this moment. In fact, one of his committees asked for a $60 million refund from another. It was initially a transfer to a super PAC to put ads on the air and start making an argument politically to voters. And yet they're asking for a refund now because they've spent all the money on legal bills. And obviously he has a lot more legal bills coming down the pike. And as he listened to how Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie uh, reacted uh, to the news uh, of Trump spending on legal bills. I mean, this guy's a billionaire. And uh, how about we go down the street, maybe just sells Trump Tower. Um, and pays for his legal fees that way, or maybe sell the plane, um, and he could do that, or one of the golf courses. But instead, he's taking $25, $100 from everyday Americans who believe they're giving it to him to help elect him president. And SE, I mean, that's true, but one could argue that many of the small donors don't care or know exactly that the money is going to help pay the legal bills for Trump and, and his uh, officials. Uh, again, he's a cause. He has something to believe in and don't tell their lying eyes uh, anything differently. So, um, you know, he's he, he's been willing to bilk his own voters, but also the Republican Party. Right. He used RNC money for his legal bills. So he doesn't want to spend his own money. That's clear. He's happy to spend yours, even if it's not on what you think it might be going toward. <laughs> Paul, doesn't the fact that Joe Biden is neck and neck with this guy who who has these unprecedented charges against him uh, really undermine uh, a fundamental weakness of Joe Biden? Uh, no, it's, I think it shows that, that, I, that I disagree with SE. Donald Trump is not a cause. He's a cult of personality. That's a big difference. Bernie Same was thing. a cause, and Bernie's a friend yeah. of mine, and it's not fair to compare Bernie and Trump. Bernie really was about national health care and taxing the billionaires, issues and ideas and a cause. For a time, Trump was a cause. We talked about the wall and expelling Muslims and all this stuff I didn't agree with, but those were at least issues. Now it's simply a cult of personality. And he has solidified uh, an iron grip on one of the two great parties in America. It does mean Biden's work is cut out for him. Uh, it means if any Democrat is going to cede 43 to 45% of the vote to the Republicans. The fact that, that the Republicans have rallied around this uh, a cult of personality is really quite amazing. I think Christie has the right way to go at him, which is he's in it for himself, not for you. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know that that can crack with Republicans, but there are a lot of independents. There's 14 percent in this poll who haven't chosen between Biden and Trump. I think Biden can make that case to them far better than Trump. All right. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate it. Coming up, the suspected Gilgo Beach serial killer 
appears in court as prosecutors hand over more than 2,500 pages of documents seized in the investigation. That story's next. In our Law and Justice lead, uh, Rex Hewerman, the alleged Gilgo Beach serial killer, is back in court today, his first appearance since being charged officially with murdering three women and being labeled the prime suspect in killing a fourth victim. CNN's Bryn Gingras is outside the courthouse in Riverhead, New York, where Hewerman's made his appearance. Bryn, tell us what happened in court. Yeah, Jake, it was a short hearing for discovery. Hewerman was there wearing uh, khaki pants, a suit jacket, and was handcuffed. He didn't say anything to the judge, just spoke to his attorney uh, when they had a little bit of a conversation. But this, again, was just handing over discovery, handing over evidence in the next process of this case. And the district attorney here describing it as a tremendous amount of evidence. It includes 2,500 pages of evidence that they've collected at numerous locations, including crime scene photos, autopsy, and DNA reports from the medical examiner's office, as well as surveillance video of not just Hewerman, but one of the motels, allegedly, of where one of these victims visited Hewerman, according to the district attorney's office. I want you to hear from the district attorney, as well as Hewerman's attorney, who spoke after this hearing. This is a 13-year case, so as you saw, uh, we have a a great uh, deal of of, um, information, evidence, photographs, reports, to provide uh, to the defense counsel. We've, we've begun that process. At this point in time, I can't tell you what defects, if any, are in any of their evidence because I haven't seen it yet. What has your client told you? What has my client told me? He told me he didn't do this. Yeah, Michael Brown, Hurman's attorney, says he's met with his client several times while Hurman remains behind bars, again, maintaining that he didn't do this. He also said he's going to be adding more staff just to go through all of this evidence. And the next court date is going to be in about uh, next month, Jake. And, and Bryn, Hurman's uh, estranged wife, soon to be ex-wife, one presumes, uh, told the New York Post that investigators left her Long Island home uh, a wreck, in her view, as they look for evidence. Um, how is uh, Hewerman's family handling this shocking news? Yeah, well, just that, Jake. She says she's still somewhat in shock. She and her two children that she shared with Hewerman have been visiting that home and trying to, as they describe it, get their life sort of back together to some sort of normalcy, piecing together what investigators took, what they didn't take. And she kind of said to the New York Post, this is all I've got is this house. So it does seem that she has somewhat distanced herself from her husband in the sense that she hasn't visited him in uh, jail. Uh, but we do know they have been communicating. Uh, but certainly she's someone that investigators are continuing to talk to as they continue this process and this investigation. All right, Bryn Gingrass uh, in Riverhead, New York for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss CNN legal analyst and criminal defense attorney, Joey Jackson. So Joey, the judge issued a protective order which would prohibit the release of copies of the evidence in this case. Is is that normal? It's uh, quite normal, Jake. It's normal because you want to protect any potential witnesses or anybody else, right? The fact is, is that attorneys need to evaluate the discovery. It's the essence of the case. What does that discovery say? That, of course, is the information provided by prosecutors, which they believe prosecutors would establish a defendant's guilt. But that information needs to be protected. There needs to have be integrity. No one should be intimidated. No one should be threatened or no one at all should be approached or contacted by anyone relating to the defendant counsel really to evaluate and oversee that information to ensure and and understand 
that it needs to be in their care so that there are no issues moving forward with respect to their defendant intimidating or reaching out to anyone. So the prosecutors are talking a big game here. They're talking about how many pages of evidence they have. Um, How much do you take their claims at face value versus how much um, do you think uh, that this might not necessarily be the slam dunk that they're, they're suggesting it might be? So early to tell, and that's the whole essence of discovery, right? You can have a press conference, as they have. You can have uh, voluminous information within an, a document, which was their bail application, 32 pages, noting triangulations of cell phones, noting data with regard to what they have to identify him as we look there at the victims of the, of the case, uh, at allegedly his hands, noting all types of information which pinpoint him. Now it's incumbent upon any defense attorney to assemble a team to evaluate everything, to assemble experts, to look at DNA, to establish whether or not there's a connection, to look at hair fibers, to look at any shred of evidence, to look at any witnesses who are identified, uh, not to the actual killings, of course, but just giving information about the defendant, what's their credibility like, what's their veracity like. So there'll be a lot of challenges. And before that discovery is turned over and looked at in all detail and before experts evaluate everything, it's too early to say that this is a slam dunk case. Certainly prosecutors believe the evidence is compelling, but that'll be up to a careful assessment and evaluation of that evidence to determine whether or not that suggestion by the prosecution is actually valid, credible and true. Joey, what kind of arguments do you think Huberman's defense should be making? I'm sorry, Jake. What kind of argu- repeat that? Yeah, what kind of arguments do you think Huberman's defense team should be making? I think they're going to make a whole assortment of arguments. I think the argument, first of all, will be let me have the discovery and let me have all of it. I think once they do that, they'll they'll have any motions to challenge any evidence. Although we may hear about evidence in public, doesn't mean we're not they won't be moving by the defense to preclude that evidence. So it never sees the light of day. They will argue about any expert testimony. They will talk about cell triangulation to be junk science. They will look at DNA and say, hey, it may be DNA, but perhaps it's not his. Perhaps there's a valid reason as to why it's there, et cetera. There'll be a whole assortment of arguments that the defense will make to challenge the evidence to go to show that it just was not their client who did this. We're a ways away from that. This will develop and uh, we'll learn more as it goes forward, Jake. All right. Thanks, Joey. Appreciate it. Just into CNN, an update on a different 2020 related investigation. The Michigan attorney general has brought criminal charges against two prominent Republicans in Michigan over their alleged roles in the plot to access and seize voting machines across the state of Michigan. Let's go to CNN's Jessica Schneider, who's covering this for us. Jessica, who exactly are the defendants in this case and what charges are they facing? Yeah, Jake, we've been tracking all of these developments out of Michigan and the two defendants that have been most recently caught up in uh, being charged with these plots as part of, you know, the plots to overturn the 2020 election. The latest charges coming against two prominent Republicans in the state of Michigan, one of them, Matthew DiPerno, he actually ran for attorney general in that state very recently. The second, a former state representative, Dare Rendon. Now, they have both been arrested, they have been charged, and they were arraigned today in Michigan, and they're facing these charges stemming from their alleged efforts to seize and then access voting machines. Now, remember, back in 2020, there were all these claims from Donald Trump that the votes were rigged in Detroit and that also voting machines in rural parts of Michigan were somehow manipulated. Of course, none of those claims turned out to be true. But as part of this effort, Republicans, allies of Donald Trump in Michigan, they attempted to seize and then access various voting machines throughout the state state. 
Because of that, investigations have been ongoing. This particular investigation conducted by a special prosecutor that was named by the state attorney general because of some conflicts of interest from the attorney general. And today we're learning for the first time that at least two of these prominent Republicans have been charged. This is a special prosecutor, D.J. Hilson, and we actually got a release from the prosecutor's office saying that this is not the end of the investigation, that we should be potentially expecting more charges because it wasn't just these two defendants involved. There were numerous Republican allies involved uh, in this alleged plot. Notably here, this is the second time we've seen prominent Republicans in Michigan charged in just a matter of weeks. I was up in Lansing, Michigan just about two weeks ago when we saw 16 Republicans who were charged in this fake electors plot. They they had tried to submit those fake certificates saying that Donald Trump had won the state of Michigan when, of course, it was actually Joe Biden who had won. So the attorney general in the state, uh, Dana Nessel, she has really been moving full force to prosecute these crimes. She prosecuted the 16 Republicans. They're actually due in court a little bit later this month. And then today we're learning that this special prosecutor that she named, D.J. Hilson, out of one of the counties there in Michigan, has brought these two charges against these prominent Republicans. And Jake, this special prosecutor saying this isn't the end. This isn't over. The investigation is continuing and we should be expecting more charges. But a lot unfolding in Michigan in recent weeks all around, um, you know, January 6th and the attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Yeah, especially with the fake electors. Are we hearing any reaction from the two who were charged today? Yeah, we are. So obviously Matthew DiPerno is a prominent Republican in the state of Michigan. He ran against the attorney general, Dana Nessel, Nessel, ultimately losing. But of course, he was backed prominently by former President Trump. His attorney has issued a lengthy statement here, completely denying any wrongdoing here. And he says that he, Matthew DiPerno, categorically denies any wrong doing and firmly asserts that these charges are unfounded and lack merit. He continues to say that DePerno looks forward to the date when his innocence will be demonstrated in a court of law. So really coming out um, f- full-throated on his innocence here. Um, but, you know, this won't be the end likely in these charges. The special prosecutor is continuing this. So we could see more charges in the days and weeks to come, Jake. So the, there was a different district attorney who began the investigation, but that district attorney bowed out. Do we know why? It was actually the attorney general of the state, Dana Nessel. She began this investigation as she began the investigation into the fake electors plot. But then she realized that there was a likely conflict of interest because one of the people charged today, Matthew DiPerno, was the one who was running against her as the Republican nominee for attorney general. That's when she handed it over to the special prosecutor DJ Hilson. He's been working on this investigation since uh, the beginning of the year here and now coming out with these two uh, charges against or more than two charges, multiple charges, actually, but against two defendants. So that was the reason for the recusal of the attorney general to the special prosecutor. Got it. Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. As we await word on whether the federal grand jury here in Washington, D.C. has decided to indict Donald Trump or not, Donald Trump is responding to information he's received on his Truth Social account. CNN's Kristen Holmes is tracking this from Bridgewater, New Jersey, just down the road from from the former president who is at his Bedminster Golf Club. Kristen, we, we don't know where he got this information, but what exactly is he claiming? Okay, Kristen uh, Holmes, uh, 
some sort of sound problem uh, we have there with Kristen. But uh, let's talk about this, because what Donald Trump has written, panel, uh, he says, I hear that deranged Jack Smith, that is the special counsel, and deranged is not actually his name, in order to interfere with the presidential election of 2024, will be putting out yet another fake indictment of your favorite president, me, at 5 p.m. Why didn't they do this 2.5 years ago? Why did they wait so long? Because they wanted it to put it right in the middle of my campaign, prosecutorial misconduct. Okay, um, you were a former prosecutor. Yes. Why didn't they do it 2.5 years ago? Well, first of all, they don't have to work on his timeline. They can work on the timeline that the evidence actually lends itself to. And so this notion that they are supposedly considering the political calendar is what the DOJ tries to guard fully against. Also, we just talked about before, they didn't have all the information. The fact that the January 6th committee had really the monopoly on a lot of the data points, a lot of the information. They had been trying to get it from the January 6th committee. They had been waiting for that to actually occur. They they did have it. They can take the amount of time necessary until the statute of limitations period actually runs. That's the clock the DOJ looks at. Now, you don't want to wait until the last minute. And why? Because if you're obviously talking about fairness to a defendant, but also from the prosecutor's selfish standpoint, memories fade. People can be who were cooperative no longer are cooperative. Grudges and access to grind can continue. You want to be as efficient as you can be without compromising anything. And finally, you know, you have to be able to see where the evidence leads you. Some things involve subpoena, getting information back, having follow-ups, mm-hmm. having discussions about what else is happening. So a lot of things take place. Yeah. This is really predictable of Trump. And, and, Jamie, we should note, I mean, why didn't it take place 2.5 years ago? Any number of people who are still allegiant to Donald Trump and some who aren't, like Mike Pence, were fighting cooperating with the special counsel? No question. Some of this had to play out in the courts. But I spoke to a a senior justice official who said to me, eight months is actually a land speed record for a case that's as complicated as this. They looked at it as if, you know, he, he was going as fast as he could. There were a lot of moving parts. Who is cooperating, to your point, getting people to cooperate, Uh, You know, the January 6th committee did give the Justice Department a roadmap. They did give them a running start. Just remember, they interviewed more than a thousand witnesses, but they also held back that information for a while. So uh, the Justice Department had to start when they could start. And Caitlin, go ahead. Well, I was also, I mean, two and a half years ago would have been, I believe, a a month after January 6th (laughs) happened. I don't think that anyone would have brought charges against a sitting president who had just left office a month before with only one month of investigation, of an investigative work done. I mean, obviously they do take time. There was a lot of extensive reporting, including the Washington Post, that the DOJ was a little slow at getting into this, not just because of the January 6th committee, but also because there was this concern about a perception of going after and investigating a former president, something that Attorney General Garland did not take lightly, and neither did FBI Director Chris Ray and others, and how they looked at the people who actually broke into the Capitol before they looked into the fake elector scheme, the fundraising, and everything else here. Trump is claiming that this is coming in nine minutes. It's not clear to us. I should note that he has actually been notified that he has been indicted. Our sense right now is this could be him just looking at press speculation, and that is why he's saying that. His team, we've been talking to them. Obviously, they've been 
waiting to see if this is actually going to happen. They've embracing for it. They don't know that it'll be in nine minutes, but they're obviously waiting for it to happen any moment now. And by the way, I mean, this is, if this were just about January 6th as the date, you know, then maybe the timeline that he's trying to put forth might make sense to someone, not me. But this is about what happened leading up to January 6th, not that just what was 187 minutes of dereliction of duty as they outlined it in terms of what he was not doing while a mob was attacking the Capitol. It goes back to the preparation leading up to the election. Various states have been implicated, data points from all those different entities, et cetera. You've got so much more here than just that actual date, which was bad enough. To build that case, it takes time. And I just repeat again, the Department of Justice is not beholden to the pleasure and schedule of a potential yeah. defendant. No, and, and I mean, you know this as a former prosecutor uh, and also as a journalist, but those of us who cover any kinds of trials, uh, whether, whether, you know, and any, any alleged crime, it takes time. Mm-hmm. You have right. to talk to witnesses, you have to get your facts straight, and you can't, you know, as Omar said on The Wire, you've, if you come for the king, you best not miss. <laughs> if you're going to make a criminal a complaint against a former president, it better be rock solid. That was a critical point here. I mean, how many people thought in the beginning there was all this speculation that Attorney General Merrick Garland was not going to do this, that it was too high a bar, even though he then famously came out and said no one is above the law. But exactly to your point, Jake, they wanted to make sure this case was beyond a reasonable doubt. This is the former president This is Donald Trump, who does not behave like most former presidents. Yeah, we continue to await word from the Justice Department on whether the D.C. grand jury hearing the 2020 election interference case has taken any action on an indictment. We're waiting to hear whether Donald Trump is right when he says that special counsel Jack Smith is planning a press statement in minutes. We'll have the latest from our team of correspondents just ahead. Stay with us. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode. 